Welcome to Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. We're here to help you take your health, fitness, and mindset to the next level. It's time to level up. Today, we had the pleasure of interviewing the one and only Dr. Jolene Brighton. She's a doctor of naturopathic medicine. She's a hormone expert, a nutrition scientist, and a thought leader in women's medicine. She is board certified in naturopathic endocrinology and trained in clinical sexology. Dr. Bryden is the author of Is This Normal? A non-judgmental guide to creating hormone balance, eliminating unwanted symptoms and building the sexual desire you crave. We have both followed her for years on social media and she is the sex ed teacher we both wish we had the privilege of learning from at a much younger age. But hey, it's better late than never. So let's get into the show. Dr. Jolene Brighton, we are so excited to have you on the podcast. Sherelle and I absolutely love your content, you know, your books, your TikTok, your social media, all of the information that you put out there. It's so informative, but so entertaining and relatable. You know, we definitely didn't have anything like this growing up where we could learn about our bodies, but not feel awkward about it. You know, the way Mm -hmm. that you deliver your content is just amazing. So we can't wait for our listeners to get to know a little bit more about you, you know, all of the awesome topics that you have now dedicated your life to teaching. Um, And to talk about topics that Sherelle and I definitely haven't dived into you know we thought we'd wait to an ex for an expert to come on and talk about some really cool things to do with women's health and all of the all of the good things around that so thank you so much for coming on yeah thanks for having me I'm glad that you have a good time with me on social media I certainly have a good time um and that's what it's all about is that we should be having fun um and I think I'm funny sometimes not everybody does they let me know on TikTok when they're like <laughs> you're not funny or you're old, get off TikTok. And I'm like, oh. you know, I wish I had some, that's like, it's fine. Like I have a almost 10 year old son. Like he will, he tries to make jokes sometimes at me and you know, my age is expense, but I'm like, look, I wish that when I was a teen, I had someone like me that would just break it down and explain stuff to me, especially in a way that doesn't feel like there's something wrong with my mm. body. Right. Like it's, um, you know, it's something I talk about in my book, Is This Normal, is that from the earliest time we learn about our bodies, like we are learning that they are a tremendous source of shame. Like there are so many things to be ashamed of. And then once we get a period and hormones start, like it's even worse, like not to mention that like they, they, they send us all to like middle school and high school together as we're going through like all of these hormone changes and people are like really critical of you and you're already self-conscious enough because thanks hormones and body doing all of these things. And then they like pile us all together in a room and like expect yeah. us to fend for ourselves. <laughs> oh, it's so Literally. true. I even remember like, um, you know, the old sex books that your mum would give you and you'd be like cringe and be an awkward conversation. <laughs> uh, and I'm so excited to be able to get into your book and talk a little bit about it because that brought up memories for me. I'm like, man, I wish something like this was around when I was going through that time. So we're so excited to have you on the podcast to be able to talk more about it. Can we like start there? I would love to hear what was sex ed like for you? So especially because uh. you're in Australia. Um, so each country like, you know, puts its own spin of shame, but also it's, well, there are some countries like shout out Amsterdam and Germany that are like, let's be like sex positive and period positive. <laughs> and like, Good. so like they're winning. Um, but I just love to hear like what you said, like, oh, cringe the book your mom gives you. Like, what was it like for you? Like when you got your period and these things started? Mm. Do you want to start, Danny? What was it like for you? Oh, okay. The The memories that come to the front of my mind was, again, probably about, we had all the primary school stuff, but that was a little bit wishy-washy. When it came to high school, as you mentioned, it's already awkward enough. You know, you're in a classroom and we were in a co-ed school, so we had males and females. There was a whiteboard and then we just had to shout out all of the nicknames for all of our parts. And it was just, of course, the boys tried to make a show out of it. I was going red the whole time. I was such a shy, embarrassed kid. Um, so that that was one of the main things that I remember. But then also putting condoms on bananas. That yeah, was everybody remembers the condoms. Everyone remembers 
Like, and it's you like, don't want to eat what? a banana after that. <laughs> you don't want to eat bananas. Like everyone's watching you. Like, and again, I was the awkward person. No one wanted to see me do that. It was just really gross. They're my yeah. two standouts of yeah, yeah craziness. Yeah, we. I was exactly the same. I remember my mum gave me a book and that was sort of the only conversation. It was like, here's a book. And it was like, go do it yourself, almost in a way. Oh. Um, and similar situation, like what is it with the condoms on the bananas? We did that in school with our awkward PE teacher that had no idea what they were doing. No idea. Right? They're like, understand physical education therefore you you understand the complex biology and physiology of reproduction like what is that i know (laughs) sir you can throw a basketball like no one will argue that (laughs) that is so true is that part of the reason um dr brighton what got you into this pathway or do you mind telling us how you actually ended up here i mean you've identified some of the loopholes in our education growing up but what sort of inspired you now to teach this to everyone? Yeah, well, so, you know, once upon a time, I was actually getting a degree in nutrition. I was going off to get my PhD. I was currently in my master's program uh, for molecular nutrition, going to go get my PhD. And I just realized that, like, I wanted to, like, I, I like, you see my personality. I'm, I'm like, wanted to be one-on-one with people. And I'm a really big nerd. So I was, like, in a lab <laughs> with people. Um, that was awesome. Uh, but I just really wanted to put the research, put the information in people's hands immediately and affect change. And I recognized that, like, research was coming out, but that didn't change how healthcare was was delivering medicine. And so I really wanted to change that. And I was going to go to medical school and then I found naturopathic medicine. And that seems like a great fit for me because, well, I could learn all of the side of, you know, diagnosing, treating, uh, prescribing drugs. And yes, this always surprised people. Like I do prescribe pharmaceuticals. Um, I also could draw on my nutrition background and it was really the only medicine at the time that was nutrition and lifestyle interventions as a foundation, while also serving people at the higher level of things like referring for surgeries or, you know, prescribing medications. And it was during that time that it was one of the medical school, it really woke up to the fact that women's medicine was done to them. My experience was that it was done to me. It wasn't with me. I wasn't a partner with my doctor. And I fortunately had really great mentors in school that showed me that like, you should always ask consent before doing a gyne exam. And it wasn't just like, hey, we're going to do an exam. It's I'm going to need to touch your thigh. Is that okay? You're going to feel my hand on your vulva. Is that okay? I'm going to insert the speculum. Is that okay? And I was like, we're asking permission like that is so important like to have that consent piece um and so that really propelled me into women's medicine being a big nerd uh being a nutrition scientist having a degree in chemistry uh endocrinology just makes sense to me when other people are like steroid pathways what that makes me want to throw up i'm like complex molecules moving together like i love this let's do let's have more of this so um, that's really like why I pursued that education. Um, the clinical sexology piece was something I was always interested in. We had a lot of great um, guest lectures come in during our grand rounds that taught a lot of things that were um, eye-opening to me. I worked in a homeless youth clinic um, and there is just a lot to like, not to be said in those discussions when you have somebody coming in at 15 and they don't actually know what anything's called down there. Like they have no idea how to separate what from what um, and seeing all those gaps. And so I pursued that education further and also to support my patients who come to me because they're having trouble with their libido and their partner's like, you got to go get your hormones checked. And they're like, I must be broken. It's my hormones. Right. And I'm like, it's so much more complex than that. And I really want to be able to deliver that information to you. So um, going online and teaching on social media, it's so funny. I never went to medical school to like build a website or to like, you know, I have a social media following or anything like that. But I have always held the belief that it's the patient that heals themselves and the doctor that really provides guidance for the majority of things that people face, right? There's surgery. There's all of these like things that like, oh, yes, thank goodness we have a doctor who does help you with that. But 
in terms of a lot of the like hormone issues women face, it's really our job to educate and to, you know, show someone the pathway so that they can heal themselves. But it's problematic when women are gaslit, when they can't get the help from their providers. And I can only see so many people. And so really my intention is to help people get education about everything that they can be doing at home to support their hormones and their health and have a better conversation with their doctor and be able to advocate from themselves. And that is one of the things that lights me up about my work is the number of women who will say, I read your article at drbrighton.com or I read your book or, um, you know, I saw this one Instagram post and I took it to my doctor and I said, no, I think this is what's going on. This is why. And I want these tests and I got diagnosed and now I'm actually getting the treatment I need. Like it really shouldn't take a doctor on social media to do that. And yet I want to help people have a better experience with their doctors so that they can heal. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. That's incredible. And I think even a big motivator for us is the exact same thing. Like I have a background sort of in nursing and midwifery. And even I was surprised like about the lack of, I guess, health literacy um, that most women understand about their bodies. It's not until they go through pregnancy or have to seek uh, medical help that they're aware of a lot of these things. But we wanted to ask you, like when it comes to reproductive health and sexual health, like what do you feel some of the common like myths are or common issues that are thought to be normal? by a lot of women that you speak with? Gosh, like we could go so many directions with this, right? So um, in my book, Is This Normal? I have it broken into three sections. And the first section is your sexual self. And that, so if people are like, where did you come up with all this, like these questions? <laughs> I've had some advanced readers that are like, how did you know that I had these questions? I'm like, because everybody has these questions. And I have been doing weekly Ask Dr. Brightons on social media, which are anonymous, which allow, mm. that's why we got really good questions about sexual health, because people are like, no one's going to know I asked this. Um, and then I have my patients. And these are the most common questions that come up. So in that section of the book, I will say uh, women having no sexual desire is normal. That's a myth that goes around or that um, if you are like in a happy relationship, like you may not have desire, you should just like, you know, have sex anyways, um, kind of situation because like, maybe, you know, uh, like that's what you're supposed to do with your partner, like that obligation. But I think one of the biggest things is like, like women's libidos, like I, I am broken because I don't have, I'm not into him all the time. Or when we first started dating, I was really into my partner. And now I'm not understanding that those kinds of changes are normal. And that it, sexual desire is really complicated for women. And that may feel like a, a wonk wonk kind of thing when I say that. But that means that there's a lot of boxes that you can go through and check and say, this like these are the things working for me these are the things that are not and not spin your will trying to address all of the things um lots of you know myths about how vaginas are supposed to smell and taste like <laughs> my god can like tiktok get off the merry-go-round already like oh eat pineapple so that you taste and smell like a pineapple mm -hmm. like i don't know how much pineapple you need to eat but i you know we don't have any evidence to support this but like however much you are eating like that's not enough like and <laughs> vaginas are supposed to smell and taste like vaginas it's i mean who tells us they should smell and taste like fruit that would be marketing thank you like vaginal douches and sprays mm. and all of that which is another myth that vaginas are inherently dirty mm. they're not <laughs> they do they have bacteria of course everywhere every part of you has bacteria like show me a part of you and I will put it under a microscope and I will show you all the bacteria. Like that's supposed to be there. It's the way it's supposed to be, but that doesn't make a vagina dirty. Um, so those are like some of the biggest myths, like when it comes to the sexual health, I would be remiss if I didn't add in the pain with sex. Even mm -hmm. doctors will sometimes tell women like pain's supposed to hurt sometimes. And I'm like pain Ugh. or pain's supposed to hurt sometimes. Of course pain hurts. What am I saying? Sex is supposed to hurt sometimes. And I'm like, sex, Okay, if you want it to be painful, that's a different conversation for people listening. Like, if that's your thing, that's your thing. But having sex, and namely when we're talking about this, it's usually vaginal intercourse, should not be painful. And if it is painful, there's something wrong. So um, I cover all of that in the sexual self. The second section 
is your cyclical self and talking all about your hormones. And with that comes the myths that we are all familiar with. Periods are supposed to be painful. PMS, that's just like comes with the territory. Like hormones are made to make you feel out of your mind. Um, uh, you know, you should feel like, um, you know, completely wiped out of your period. I mean, even if you look at like some of the products that are for periods, it's like, they even illustrate like doom and gloom, like you're on your period, but like, here, take our product. And then like the heavens part and the sun shining and birds are chirping. And it's like, you know, it, it doesn't have to be like that. Like, and that's just a story that's been handed down from generations that I'm pretty sure didn't even start with women. Yeah. As you were saying all of that stuff, I was just remembering my teenage years of like the pineapple thing, right? Like that was, yeah. a, that was, that was like real when I was would say that too. They'd be like, don't worry, I've eaten a lot of oh. pineapple. It's all good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there is, um, there is a bit, so this is a, a book all about, uh, women's health, but I do like women ask me a lot of questions about sperm. So I break it all down in the book, about, you know, taste, nutritional value um the you know the things that men say like no they're not going to die of blue balls and if they really have blue balls they need to go to the emergency room okay like that's what needs to happen but um yeah the pineapple thing right like oh it's um i mean but there are things that will change the the taste and smell of semen like smoking mm. that's not good like that can mm. that can make mm. the Whereas like Samantha from Sex in the City called Funky Spunk. Yeah, that can happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, as you were talking as well about the, um, you know, like what was coming up for me was how different all our bodies are. And I think we're sold this like perfect vagina or perfect body of what it should oh. look like. And it honestly <laughs> wasn't until I saw thousands of vaginas as a midwife that I was like, okay, like why are we not shown this stuff and actually educated yeah. that a vulva can look like this and you can have that and we're all so different. It's actually normal because I feel yeah. like the kids on TikTok need you. Like I would be stoked if I was 14 and had you on TikTok to be able to learn from when I was growing up. Is that something that you're seeing as well, like especially with the younger generation, like more education and insight around some of these things? No. So oh. we, I actually talk about this in the book. Um, so, okay. So like this part of why I wrote the book, right? Because like, we've all went to Google something, you Google enough things, you end up at cancer on the internet, oh, right? Nice. You're like, Oh God, I'm going to die. Um, or <laughs> there's the, I want to Google this sex question and know if I'm normal, but now I'm in a porn site and I'm afraid <laughs> I got a computer virus. Like, right? It's like, it's a speedy arena out there on the internet. Um, but what we, you know, I talk about in the book about um, the actual surgeries that are being done to the vulva, the vagina, but like the plastic surgery um, or cosmetic surgery meant to this. I'm like, so like, I like people will get to this part of the book and I think they'll know that I'm just like not a fan of the Barbie doll, that's like the mm. procedure, which Barbie doesn't have any genitalia. Why are you trying to look like a plastic, a plastic doll? Like, it's like, do you want to look like a Tonka trunk? Like, no, <laughs> like, why is this a standard? But, um, and that's not to shame anyone who's had this done, but I want to speak to the fact that I, there's been a lot of predatory information, in my opinion, on social media of cosmetic surgeons being like, oh, you will, you'll have better sex. There's no evidence for that. And like, there's evidence that like, you could, you could cut up a clitoris and not have like the same nerve intervention. And now we have sexual dysfunction, or you could, um, you know, end up like you know, having pain with sex for, you know, scar tissue or things that are done, but also that there can be infections. And then we've got, you know, problems in that arena. Um, but it's this whole idea of like that they're supposed to be an any. So we're talking about the vulva forever. Mm. And I have actually a chapter where I try to not so dryly explain all of your anatomy to you um, in a way that's like, not just the like, this is where period comes out and pee and da da da. Mm. It's like, this is the pleasure centers. And this is like how everything's supposed to work. And this is the way it's supposed to look. And like, this is, you know, the spectrum of normal. And here's the Call the doctor. This is a problem. Please do not like continue uh, this manner. I think that's important too. But in that, um, people call it the any vagina. All vaginas are any. Like I hate to break it to you, <laughs> they are the inside. But what they mean is the uh, the labia minora, and that is so. If you're on the outside, that's the labia majora. If you're like towards your thighs, you come in um, towards oh, towards the openings, and that's where you're going to find the labia minora. 
um, about half of women, it's going to be longer. It's normal. And, um, but do you see that in medical textbooks? Like, do you see it? Like, even in medical textbooks, it's problematic that like, it's the, the tissue is pink, it's uniform, and it's a white body. Well, I had to break it to you, but like tissues come in all colors down there. Um, and, uh, you know, bodies are different colors as well. And it's normal for it to be darker in color. But um, this whole idea, what's really funny, and I do want to say I like had to cut out my rant about like the porn versus medicine, because um, it like the book is like over 400 pages like if people are like why because there's like so much else in there um but doctors and other people that will be like it's porn porn is why women are having these cosmetic procedures to their vulva and they and i feel like porn's kind of the scapegoat um in some of these things when there's everything I just explained about medical anatomy textbooks, and then there's the fact that there's actual doctors on the internet making these promises. And we saw for a long time that young teen girls were like 5% of getting the surgery. This is before their bodies are developed. But when you look at porn, um, well, <laughs> you don't have to look at porn. You look at the research on porn, I should say. <laughs> um when you look at the research on porn and you and you actually, I mean, you don't even have to go that far. You can just look at like what is voted as like the best vulva, like basically who was streamed the most, they vary a lot. They're not all shaved and, and clean cut like people believe. Um, they sometimes are. And yes, that is more predominant in that field. But you, what this tells us is that people who love vulvas love all kinds of vulvas. And so who are we doing these surgeries for? And why is it that we are being targeted with like bleaching, like anal bleaching or um, bleaching your labia? Please don't do that. You are concentrated in melanocytes in that area. Um, hormones, oh, wait, let me back up. Melanocytes make pigment. So there's gonna be more pigment down there. Hormones are going to stimulate that during different phases of your life. It's gonna stimulate it more. When you get aroused, it's going to be more pronounced. And while nobody likes to think of us as like animals, we are animals. And these are signs of arousal that signals to a partner. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's all normal. Um, and if no one like really heard me and took home the point, bodies are not uniform, not in shape, not in color. I could show you my two hands and you would find like discrepancies between them. Everybody look at your feet right now. Look at your toes. They're not exactly the same. That's not made to breed insecurity in you. It's made to let you know that like your genitalia is no different. Mm. Wow. If you were in school as a sex ed teacher, how would you change the way that like sex education is delivered? I think that Germany and um, Amsterdam and, you know, you look at these other countries, they've got it right. And the one, and I can say that confidently because they have instituted sex education that's mandated, that is medically accurate. That's not, we can't say that in the United States. We've only got 18 states with medically accurate sex education. And I want to be very clear, if it is not medically accurate, it is not accurate. It's just not. What is it? It's somebody else's agenda and their own shame that they're projecting on your body or trying to control. Um, but when we look at like Germany, for example, like we've actually had a generation go through this sex education. Um, when we look at how the Dutch are educating, we have got, so statistically speaking, we've got lower incidences of teen pregnancies. Okay, that's a great marker. But what we do see that I think is really important and not part of the conversation is that these are pleasure-centered models. So consent is talked about at a very young age. I'm talking toddlers. Um, I do this personally with my own boys. I think everybody should understand consent. It's not part of sex education statewide here either. Um, but in addition to that, there is this pleasure-centered focus. And this is something people are afraid of. Like if you tell them about pleasure, they'll want to have sex uh, more, you know, with more partners more frequently, like, you know, all of these fears that people have. Um, the reality is, is that they have less partners, they're more likely to be monogamous, and they're more likely to communicate with their parents. And I think that is the most important thing. So I, in my community, I'm a homeschooler. And in my community, I do teach the health education for the girls. So I actually do that for the parents. 
Um, and it's a mom daughter situation that I have come in. I haven't gotten like, I don't know, the, 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 no takers yet on boys sex ed, but like, I don't know, my expertise is in um, women. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> but um, I bring in the parents because I want the mom in that room to know everything I'm saying, mm-hmm. to be body literate, to like, she's going to take in way more information than that child is. And I want her to be the expert in her household so that when the communication, you know, around, you know, whatever question it is like comes up for that child, they don't go to the internet. They don't go to their friend. They trust going to their parent. They have that communication because when that happens, we see greater outcomes when it comes to the health and well-being. Um, so if I was to change things, I, that's the model, especially based on the research, the STIs, the pregnancy uh, rates, the um, sexual assault, much lower. And not to mention that in the United States, uh, you know, we've got surveys, right? And sur- we don't have great research. It's hard to do research in this arena um, when you've got so many outside influences on what people might say. But people aren't really satisfied or happy with their first time that they have sex in the United States, whereas in these other countries, they are. They do report sexual satisfaction. They communicate with their partner before having sex. Like, I don't know about all of you, and we don't have to answer this, but I'd just like everybody to like think about that first time. Did you sit down and have a conversation about what this would be like? Like, these kids in these countries are like, when I say kids, but like, you know, they're like, uh, in the, you know, they're late teens. So that just like makes me sound old. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, but they actually said like, it was fun. It was enjoyable. Like I had a good time. Like I did feel like it was a pleasurable experience. And we don't see that in countries that push like an abstinence only approach or push um, a non-medically accurate and pleasure in the, is the last thing we talk about agenda. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's so interesting to think about it like it. And yeah, I'm, you just have too many flashbacks coming back. Too I'm not many. You, Daddy. <laughs> Absolutely. I just love how comfortable you are in the way that you deliver your information. And it definitely does start, I think, as you mentioned, from the parent-child relationship. A lot of households don't really know how to go about the topic. You know, my parents were a bit awkward about it. Sherelle, you mentioned your mum through your book and sort of said, there you go. And then that leaves us open to then, you know, try and learn from school. But then the school system wasn't ideal. Um, yeah. Then we, the kids and the days... school system's who your parents learn from. So, like, yeah. was it really their fault? Like, how do we get this information? I mean, that's a big part of why I wrote the book is because yeah. it's like, can we just, I just want to disrupt. I want to disrupt the system. And I want to see women right now get the information they need and pass it along to the next generation. Great. But then also removing that desire for perfectionism. As you said, there are agendas, there's marketing, people are making money off these images and information. You know, we all look different. And as you've been saying, that's totally normal. You know, people are watching porn and thinking that's how it has to be, or even Disney movies or teenage movies, you know, they think that, you know, people always want to have sex and it's firing. They're always into each other. You don't show the pain or, you know, the awkward moments and, you know, or the condom. Or the condom. The banana condom. That's never moment, right. <laughs> that is so yeah, true. Yeah, that pause beforehand, they cut that out. And no, like <laughs> consent coming up. Like none of these yeah. things that I'm talking about are even modeled in the media, right? Like people don't start dating and then like have these conversations and then like, you know, like consent. I think that there's and in that the messaging is consent is not sexy. And I tell my patients all the time, and I will, it's, and I will tell you, consent can absolutely be sexy, especially when you recognize that a very large percentage of the population likes to be talked dirty to. So make it spicy. Like I want to do this and this, and this is something that like I am like. I'm into and I'm fantasizing about her. Oh gosh. Like, I, and, and then say, is that okay? Like, can I do this? And like, that is something that is sexy to a lot of people. And I think that because it's not modeled, people think like consent is being like, wait, can I kiss you? Wait, can I do this? <laughs> Sorry, and, um, there are certain, I know, right. There are certain like times that, I mean, I can't recall right now, but like there has been times that I've seen shows and I've seen movies where like it is like that. And I'm like, what a negative. And where the girl's like, oh God, just kiss me. Like, just be done with it already. Mm -hmm. And it's like, 
you know, that's really negative messaging. And I get like, and I would say it's always better to be cautious. Like that, that person should be rewarded because it's always better to be cautious about things and make sure your partner's comfortable. Um, as we were talking about pain with sex, you know, <laughs> if you've seen this on TikTok, we're like, I, I just say like men really tell on themselves. They really tell on themselves about how little they know their body. Everybody listening, when you read, is this normal? You will never feel shamed by these men trying to make stupid jokes on the internet and things that they say like, oh, like, you know, um, I don't want a woman who's had a baby because I want her to be tight. And I'm like, mm, tight is the equivalent of a flaccid penis, my friend. Like tight is someone who's <laughs> not into you and not aroused. Like you just like haven't done the work, friend. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the myths oh, yeah. I bust in the book is that like, in, vaginas aren't supposed to be tight like they're supposed to expand like they're supposed like this idea of tight that's usually a vulva that's like one it could be a vaginismus or it could just be like i'm uncomfortable there's friction i don't really want to be doing this and i don't know how to say no kind of thing um tight is not a metric that we want to be after and i think it has a lot of women kegling for you know their life and causing a lot of pelvic floor dysfunction and then that can lend even more to painful sex, urinary issues, like urinary incontinence. Um, it's, it's a bad road to want to be going down. But I think, you know, that's just one more of those myths that like needs to go away. So you said, did you just say Kegels can cause pelvic floor dysfunction? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Kegels are one exercise. Are they a good exercise? In context, they can be a fantastic exercise. Or if your issue is that your your pelvic floor is tight, and those muscles are they're not relaxing you don't know how to relax those muscles you're only going to make things worse and when i say to women is like would you go to the gym and you've got this whole arm right you would just work your bicep that's it you would never pay attention to the tricep or anything else like what would happen you'd have imbalance and then you'd have compensation and then probably you lead to pain so i think there's um I actually count it. There's probably a hundred times that I'm like meet with a physical pelvic floor physical therapist or occupational therapist because really I think those should be standard in women's medicine. Like you know, people are going to get their you know pap smears every you know, one, three years, five years in that range. Like, can we just make sure we're getting check ins with pelvic floor physical therapists? Everybody has ever had a baby pelvic floor physical therapist ever like fallen on your butt pelvic floor physical therapist like. Um, so, you know, for a long time, doctors have been like Kegel, just Kegel, just Kegel, but that can be really problematic. It could be the best thing for you, but in context of what you actually need, it could cause more dysfunction. Mm. Wow. There's so many topics that come under like women's health as well. I think people just yeah. think, oh, period. So have a baby. And it's like, there's actually so many broader conversations that a lot of people that are working with women like really need to be aware of or like know where to uh, like send their clients or their patients to be able to get more insight on those areas. And I think one of the big ones that you touched on earlier was libido. Like it's so mm. not spoken about um, with women because I feel like, especially in like mainstream media, we're like the passengers um, in the relationship. And then I feel mm. one more layer on that is like, relationships that like you've been in for years and years and years like no one talks about then like sex and intercourse uh, yeah dynamic as well and something in your book that I was reading was about like what is normal in terms of frequency like how often mm -hmm. should you be having sex and you know I, I can just speak on my own behalf but I feel like men are always well, my man always ready to go <laughs> whereas like I feel like women like respond a little bit differently when it comes to like intercourse and libido. And I would love to just yeah. get your opinion on how that dynamic happens between a man and a woman when it comes to libido and what makes our libidos different if there is anything. Yes. Okay. So um, like, where do I want to start? Cause there's like so much uh, good in that. Okay. So I do hear this a lot that like um, my male partner is always ready to go, but I'm not, and I can't match that. Well, I had this 28 day program in the book and it's 28 days based on, because it's based on the framework of how we typically teach menstrual cycles. And that's how your hormones are cycling. By the way, if you're in perimenopause, you've got longer cycles, you're in menopause, all of this information is going to help you as well. Um, because the program is a lot about hormones, but there's all of these 
sex exercises and ways of getting to know yourself. And that is really important to start to understand what are the things that are your turn-ons and your turn-offs? And when I say that, it feels a little bit like Cosmo magazine, like, oh, what are your turn-ons and what are your turn-offs? And people usually go places where it's like, oh, it turns me on, um, you know, when they kiss me on the neck or it turns me on when they touch me here or it turns me on when they say this. Um, some people get turned on by, uh, let me just say, actually, a lot of women, it's a seeing my partner doing something they're really good at, seeing my partner play with their kids, seeing my partner, um, you know, helping with things like, because it's signaling that you've got this, you've got this person who's helping you in your life. But some of these things as well, these, these turn ons that we focus on, they're actually the least important thing. The most important thing are those turn offs. And when people think of turn offs, they're like, Oh, if he has a hairy chest or, oh, if they chew with their mouth open, everybody hates it when people chew with their mouth open. <laughs> that is reality. So, um, but really a lot of the like, turnoffs and what I refer to them as is, um, uh, breaks. And this, this is not, I just want everybody, these are not my concept. This is, there's some really brilliant researchers who have really explored this in depth. And for women, a lot of times it's that we've got to have those breaks disengaged and breaks can be things like, you're un, un, unequal labor in the house, like not sharing of tasks. So not task sharing is a really big one um, for women. Threat of pregnancy, being afraid you might get pregnant, also a turn off. Um, you know, the other issue might be your body image. And we've been talking about body image issues. That's one of the top ones. Stressors in your life, things that have nothing to do with your sex life. Those can be impacting you. Those are the, so the, I take you through like, figuring out what's true for you and all of this, and then take you through your cycle of understanding things. So, and understanding how hormones affect you. So you are more likely to want to engage um, in sex in a more spontaneous way. It's going to be a lot easier, right? Like you're not going to be doing much and your brain is like sex and you're like, I got that. Let's go. Um, and you're going to see that like around ovulation or maybe even on your period, because you won't have progesterone coming in being like, no, we, we already ovulated. We can't get pregnant. We don't care about this. Um, and whereas like in the lighter half of your cycle, you may notice that you are feeling like mm, I'm less inclined to want to have sex. Like I'm, you know, it's, it takes me a lot more to get there. And so this can happen cyclically. But as I take you through this quiz in um, the the chapter about libido, it's a very common sexual health intake form to understand. And it's truncated. I would like to put like all of the things in there, but some of them I'm like, mm, we can get there without that. Um, but this intake form is helping you understand like, where do you, where do you lie? Are you more of a responsive desire? Which is where I'm like, you kind of got to get the car going for the car to get going kind of thing. And are you the spontaneous desire where your brain is like registering sex, like, and your brain's like, oh, sex, like, let's, let's do that. And that's what sometimes people will think of as like a higher libido. Now, I think what's important for people to understand is neither one of these is better. And you could be either one and be having more or less sex. A, a higher sex, sexual desire does not correlate to having more sex or more sexual activity. Um, so it's not uncommon to feel like you're mismatched from your partner. It's not uncommon to feel that there is a cyclical nature and it's not, you know, I see this play out all the time on social media and it happens with my patients as well. It's easier to like have that nuanced conversation with patients. They see a play out on social media where women are putting up, it's always like, I feel like TikTok is like such a ruthless place for mm -hmm. men to come in and women will put like, I'm not into him because like he didn't do the dishes after he promised he would He left me all these dishes and I have to do those. And I'm not into him um, because like, look at what he did to the bathroom and I've got to go in and clean that. And men are like, you're not accounting for that. He worked all day. And because he worked all day, you need to have sex with him. And I'm like, firstly, a marriage contract, it is not consent and it is not a paper of ownership. So no, we're not doing that. Secondly, and like I say in my book, if all you have to do is follow through on your word or put your underwear in the hamper or like, you know, just like actually pee in the toilet, like, why wouldn't you just do that? Like, why wouldn't you? And then you would get more of what you're after. Like, it's so simple, but it's your damn entitlement. 
that you just think like she should just like be into you. And, you know, and, and part of that is also to be fair to men is that, um, the, the, the male way of being, being a man in this world and the, and really the way that they're told to be men, it's not even the reality of what it is to be a man. That is the archetype and that is the standard for which we are all expected to match. And that's a lot where are these myths about libido. Um, so that was a lot of information about libido. I could like, I seriously could have just written a whole book about that. Um, <laughs> but I was like, we got a lot more to cover. <laughs> no, nah, that's great. And it's great insight because I think it's so nuanced. Like I feel like a lot of the women's health stuff starting to come out now, like about periods and PMS and all that sort of stuff, because it's quote unquote, a normal part of what happens to our body. Like we get a period every month, we have babies, those sort of things. But when it comes to sex and intercourse and libido, it's still very taboo. And even with orgasms um and you've yeah. mentioned about the the 28 day piece in your book which sounds like you know some great insight to be able to learn more about how to explore our libido not just from a physical perspective but also an emotional perspective which is just mm-hmm. as important but I would love to get into the topic of orgasms because it's something oh, we've yeah. never spoken about on the show and I've never heard a podcast talk about um <laughs> orgasms the more that I was thinking about it, I was like you know it really is something that's just so taboo and not spoken about and it damn well should be yeah well i mean we're all told that like you know a woman having an orgasm is like finding a unicorn in the forest right (laughs) it's another (laughs) myth i think it's really easy to go down the road of like damn these men like it's another myth of like why men just get to be like I just get to have vaginal intercourse like whenever I want, no matter what I do. And like, it doesn't matter if you have pleasure because it's impossible for you to have pleasure. And um, as I say in my book, like, I don't think that's what men want. I really do think that men want to be in on this conversation of orgasms. And it's not that I think it, it's one of the top Google searches. When it comes to orgasms, it's like how to make a woman come. That's what people want to know. And it's not all just women on their searching. So, um, it is, I think it is a really taboo topic because, and a big part of it is because, I mean, let me just back up in the book I go through, um, you know, um, this, you know, French guy, doctor, has it calling the uh, clitoris just basically the shameful member. That's what, that's what they named it. Wow. The clitoris being cut out of medical text, even though like we had dissection and information about this, like hundreds of years ago, they cut it out of medical textbooks. They just like, kept that information away and um even like Freud who we will all agree by the time you get through my book that he is the worst like forget that guy um he's like oh the vaginal orgasm is like the highest self and like the you know clitoral orgasm is so infantile and I'm just like oh my god why don't you just say you're not good at sex dude you could just say that you could just say I'm a selfish lover and all Mm. I care about is vaginal intercourse like you could just say that it's definitely a taboo topic and I think a lot of women just succumb to the fact that they don't know how to orgasm or maybe on their own but they're not with another partner um Mm. and it's kind of embarrassing you don't want to be the only one out of the friendship group to not experience orgasms or you know not know that about yourself um yeah and a lot of people do say well or ask the question, is it needed for reproduction? Because I suppose we know it's not. So then what's the purpose of it? What's the importance of it? Like, obviously we know, um, but just for those who are unsure, yeah, can you please elaborate a bit on that? I just have to laugh because, okay, so one, uh, the clitoris is just made for pleasure. So um, I go through this in my book about how, like, all the tissues start, and they essentially start female. And then there is a wash of testosterone that begins in the beginning. And if there's a Y chromosome um, present, then we get differentiation. And instead of a labia and clitoris and vagina, we're like scrotum and penis. Um, And uh, like, let me just say, this is an oversimplification because biology is a lot more complex when it comes to the, um, the number of different chromosome variabilities that there can be and how genital formation can happen. So a lot of people are like, there's just female genitalia and there's male genitalia. And it's like, well, actually nature is a little more messier than what we've been trying to make it out to be. Um, so just so people know, that is an oversimplification. And yet these tissues, the, the point I'm illustrating is they're the same. And except that a penis 
has to also urinate and deliver ejaculate. Um, so it's necessary for a man to orgasm, to ejaculate in order for pregnancy to occur, which is why vaginal penetration and male ejaculation is really at the forefront of sex education and really all these conversations. However, um, no one would, no one would like argue that like a penis needs to be stimulated in order to orgasm and that's okay. Um, and yet a clitoris, same tissue, like why wouldn't you stimulate that? So um, no, you don't have to orgasm to become pregnant. However, I would say that if you are trying to become pregnant and um, there is an orgasm available, then like what, like that's going to inspire you more, right? And in fact, like orgasms make us uh, lots of oxytocin. And so we want to bond with our partner. We want to be with them. M Mom and nature didn't get this wrong, right? Because if you've got this great source of pleasure and it feels so good, um, and you've got a short refractory period, which means you can have multiple orgasms, then you're going to seek that out. Mm -hmm. So it kind of is essential for uh, where we've landed as a species for mm -hmm. being able to reproduce, because why would we go seek this out if there was nothing in it for us? If there was nothing in it for us, we wouldn't seek this out. And so that I think nature got it right with all of that. And you're absolutely right in terms of, um, so when you look at the research, um, women can orgasm on their own and really fast, a lot of like over 90% can orgasm on their own and they can arrive there very quickly. However, when we're talking heterosexual relationships, what we find is that generally during sex, 95% of men, uh, so 95% of men will, will climax during sex, whereas only 65% of women will climax. And so this is what's referred to as the orgasm gap or the abyss in frequency mm -hmm. of orgasms that exist in heterosexual relationships. And because we live in such a heteronormative society that, you know, it perpetuates this idea that like that must be normal. It must be normal. But what's normal is that we're not teaching about the clitoris. And if somebody doesn't have the knowledge and education, then they can't really know how to use it and how, how to be able to do that. And I will say two things. There's usually a man who comes in and says, no, but like, I know that she is. <laughs> Sir, like over 85% of women have faked it at least once. <laughs> Um, that's based on the research and the reason for like a big reason for that is protecting your ego. Like yeah. it's, it's an altruistic ego protection behavior where she's like, I know there's nothing in this for me, but I'll do it for you. Um, or she just wants it to be over with, which like, yeah, that's definitely mm -hmm. something to take note of. We also know from the research on lesbian couples that 86% of lesbians climax during partnered sex. Mm -hmm. So that orgasm gap is only between heterosexual men and women. And I'm hoping we can close that with my book by getting people clitoris, <laughs> which uh, is not a term I coined, but it is very, uh, very apt. Is that, um, is that Dr. Jolene, just because of the education that you feel around like stimulation or stimulating the clit? Is that what you feel that that gap is from? I think it's complex. So one, you got to know where the clitoris is. You got to know how to stimulate it. I, um, and so based on what has been reported in the research, um, let me just first say this. It doesn't matter what the research says. It, first and foremost is what you enjoy and you got to communicate with your partner, but it is the medium pressure. So men don't, men might not know where it is or how to touch it. So it's medium pressure and up and down motion or circular motion and finding a rhythm. So there's got to be a rhythm to it. Um, and then tuning into your partner and your partner providing you feedback. Um, so there is a learning curve in all of that. There are things that you need to know. So, but it's not just about like knowing where it is, knowing how to do it. It's that communication piece is also a big part of it. And so, um, I think, you know, those are like the big areas that really keep that orgasm gap. But then there's also the the piece that we talked about at the beginning, the shame piece, the, um, you know, the we don't talk about this, or maybe she's never masturbated on her own, because there's shame with that. 
or because of religion or because of, you know, you know, whatever reason that hasn't happened. So she doesn't actually know how to arrive there either. Um, and so it's harder for her to give feedback or even know what's possible and what's the, the potential around that. And so I go over these things in my book. I have a whole chapter on masturbation, which I know is going to piss some people off. Um, mm. But like, how can I not? Mm. If I'm going to be like talking about orgasms and talking about all of this, um, then it also has like tons of sex toys in there too. So um, if you're curious, <laughs> there's tons of information about that. Um, but just there's a lot of myths around masturbation um, that I'm still surprised like exist. And then, you know, people... <laughs> There was just this TikTok that I, I stitched and literally this girl is saying masturbation is a form of witchcraft. And I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and I do talk about that in my book of like, where, where does that come from and everything? And even though like, I can't, we, we can laugh now. Let me just say we can laugh now. But once upon a time, people were killed for this. Mm. You were called a witch oh, wow. and you were killed. Um, and that is just really important. I mean, like it is funny now, but when you recognize just like, this was stigma that killed you. Like this was stigma. This wasn't that goes beyond like shame or being in high school and feeling like, oh my God, I will die. Like you literally could die Mm -hmm. because of this. And these myths and fears that are really meant to control you, uh, they've continued. And like, I'm, we're still seeing this come up on TikTok. Um, which I'm like, man, if that's true, why are we have so many problems in this world? Because there's a lot of people masturbating and crafting some magic. Like, why why have we not solved some problems? <laughs> so true. And I'm so excited for everyone just to get a copy of your book. As we said, Sherelle and I have read it. And again, it is the resource that we wish we had growing up, but we're so grateful that you have been able to provide the world with it now. Um, so release date being April 4th, but then for us Aussies, you did mention April 6th. Um, we're a little yes. bit behind. Yes. So we are so excited. Well, we publish on Tuesdays in the US and you guys publish on Thursdays. So it's just a different, I don't know. I think Thursday is kind of better. You get the book, you go into the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we're so grateful for you coming on and speaking to our audience. I know everyone listening to this will absolutely love um, the knowledge bombs that you've dropped in here and just your experience as well. But we would love to um, like extend to our audience, where can they find more information about you, about your resources, about your other books, and just more of you in general? Yeah, well, you'll find me at my main hub, which is drbrighton.com, D-R-B-R-I-G-H-T-E-N. So like the sun.com, if you go there slash is this normal, you can grab a free cookbook that accompanies is this normal, the book. Um, and that cookbook is all about supporting your hormones, literally all of them, not just your sex hormones, but your adrenal glands, your thyroid. And it takes you through a four week meal plan that really is following your cycle. Um, so you can go there, you can grab that and then you can find me all over social media. So like TikTok, Instagram, YouTube at dr. Jolene Brayton. <laughs> I almost said talkbrain.com again. <laughs> <laughs> no, amazing. Thanks for all that. We'll pop all those links in the show notes as well. And just a big thank you again. I've followed you for years um, on Instagram and now, of course, TikTok, and you spread some amazing education. So everyone, make sure that you head over to those pages and click the follow button. You definitely won't regret it. Uh, and just thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation and I'm so glad we could talk so candidly. (laughs) Thank you.